We're going to jump into Exodus 2 today, um, but I hope as we read Hebrews 11, you saw how helpful Hebrews 11 is in understanding Exodus 2. So we're going to be bouncing back and forth in both this morning. Before I do that, um, uh, we're dealing with God's Word here. God's Spirit is the one who brings God's Word to life in our hearts. So I'm going to pray and ask that God's Spirit would be at work in us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that this morning your word would come alive, that your spirit would be working in each of our hearts, making us ready and prepared to receive your word and be transformed by your word. And Father, I pray that today we would all uh, leave this place encouraged knowing that you are the author of our salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Have you ever asked yourself, what's God doing in my life? Like, what's, what's going on in my life? What, what is God doing through my life? Where am I meant to be going? What is my purpose? You know, I've always been really hesitant to see God's work specifically in life. It's just my natural bent. I don't like going around saying, oh, God did that and God did that and God did that. I'm just a sceptical person. If I didn't uh, believe that Jesus rose from the dead, I'd probably be one of those people that just didn't believe in God at all or any supernatural things. Thankfully, I do believe Jesus rose from the dead and I, and I do know God is real. But, you know, it's stuff like, oh, I got that job, that was God, God worked in that. Or, you know, that car in front of me was in the car crash but I was just one back and I avoided that, that was God at work. Or, you know, this is all part of God's plan. He's doing... Like, those kind of things, uh, I, I shy away from those kind of things. In my head, my normal response is, the doi. Yeah, of course God's at work in that, right? He's at work in everything. Anything happens only by God's will. God is the one who has the ruling hand who stands behind all things, whether you've got the job or not, whether you're in the car accident or not, whatever it is. Of course God stands behind it. What I don't like really pushing is going, God did that thing to bless me. Or, or God did that thing because he wants me to have, he wants me to know, he wants me to... Like assuming motive on God, that's the thing that I, I, I just naturally am like, I don't like saying that. Now that's just me, other people have been the other way. I don't mean to make my suspicions your suspicions. You might be more than happy to see God's work in your life and that's really fantastic and wonderful. But I reckon when things go our way, that's when we're more likely to say, that was God. God did that. When things don't go our way, that's when we start asking, what's God doing? What's going on? And so I think most of us probably at some point would have asked the question, what, what is God doing? Well, why is my life going this way? What, what's the plan? What's the purpose? Is there a plan? Is there a purpose? Why am I going through a difficult time? Why didn't I get that job that I was so qualified for? Or why did I lose my job? Why didn't I get accepted into that next course or get that next promotion or, or whatever it is? Why, why did I not get that thing I worked so hard for? Or even, and this is what I've felt most often, why does life just keep going on repeat? Nothing new, no change. Get up, go to work, get home, deal with the kids, put them to bed, eat dinner, crash, sleep, repeat. I worked a normal job, like an, like an office job, for 18 months. It took two months for me to start asking that question. 
get up, go to work, do my job, go home, relax for a bit, go to bed, rinse, repeat. What is God doing in that? Why, why is life so monotonous and, and humdrum? Well, in Exodus 2, we meet Moses. Now, he doesn't have one of those humdrum, repetitive lives. His life is full of excitement. And it's really easy to see God's hand in his life and what God is doing. God is preparing Moses to be a deliverer, right? He prepares Moses to go take Israel out of Egypt, bring them to God's holy mountain, have the covenant, blah, 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 blah. That's what God's doing. But as we read Exodus 2 in the context of the whole Bible, and particularly Hebrews 11, we actually see that there's a way to, while we might not know exactly what God's doing, have a way forward with that question, to be able to deal with the question of what is God doing. So I hope that as we look at Exodus 2 and Hebrews 11, you will go away going, I can deal with the rinse and repeat nature of my life. I can deal with the ups and downs because of Exodus 2 and Hebrews 11. So that's where we're going. Uh, we'll see if we get there, right? And if we don't, I apologise. But no, I'm confident God, God's word is good and it's powerful. Um, so let's recap. Just did a wonderful uh, version of this in the kids' talk. I'm going to do a less good version and less pictury version. Uh, but uh, Israel are in Egypt at the start of Exodus. Uh, they're multiplying and growing and Pharaoh's getting pretty worried. So he determines to destroy them. He enslaves them. They continue to grow. He tries to get the midwives to uh, kill these babies. They continue to grow. So finally, Exodus chapter 1, verse 22, he says, toss all newborn boys into the Nile. Drown them. It's mass genocide, right? But like the other two times, when Pharaoh applies pressure to Israel, they continue to grow and flourish. And you see that in Exodus 2 verse 1. So please keep your Bible open to Exodus 2 this morning. You might want to keep a finger in Hebrews 11 because we'll go back and forth a little bit. But Exodus 2 is where we'll spend most of our time. Let me read the first two verses. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw he was a fine child, she she hid him for three months. Pharaoh applies pressure kill all the newborn boys, they continue to multiply and grow. A Levite man marries a Levite woman and they have children, one of whom is a particularly special child. Moses' mother saw that he was a fine child, so she hid him. She, She doesn't toss him into the river of death, she determines to rescue him, to save him. Now, just imagine those first three months with Moses, Imagine the stress, any little peep, any little cry, a neighbour could hear, and because the neighbour doesn't want to get in trouble, the neighbour could take the baby, or, you know, going out to the market, uh, do you leave Moses at home, or do you take him with What do you do? Pretty soon we're going to have four newborn babies in church, right? Which is very exciting. We're all very excited about that. Imagine if we said to those mothers, we don't want to hear a peep from them. Imagine if we said that. Just for a couple of hours on a Sunday morning, imagine the stress. Shushing, hushing, holding close. Probably you just wouldn't come to church if that's what we said. Moses' parents hid him for three months. Three months. Now, of course, we love kids. We would never say that to mums. We love hearing your kids. We love hearing the goos and gars and the chuckles and things, even the cries. So mums, don't worry. 
But, but eventually, as Moses grows, three months old, it's just too difficult. They can't hide him any longer. The risk is too great. And if they're found out, he will be killed. So instead, Moses' mother decides to entrust him to God. She puts him in a basket, uh, makes the basket waterproof, places him in the river, and, and the water that's meant to kill, it leads to new life. Under God's hand, the daughter of Pharaoh spots the basket in the reeds, fetches it, opens it up and finds a fine Hebrew child. And instead of obeying her father and tossing him in the Nile, she has compassion on him. When she lays eyes on him, she loves him and decides to raise him as her own. And now Moses' sister, who has been following along, hidden in the reeds, watching to see what would happen, not something you'd do if you just expect a croc to take the basket or, or it flip and drown. She's following because she expects something to happen. Moses' sister comes to Pharaoh's daughter and is like, what a coincidence, you found a child, isn't that amazing? Hey, would you like me to find a nurse for her? Someone to care for this child until the child is weaned and ready to go to the palace. And so God acts. Moses is returned to not just any woman, not just even any Hebrew woman, but his very own mother, who's paid to care for him. Moses' mother was doing it for free before, in fear, now doing it out in the open, being paid. God was at work. The one who cares most for this child is the one who gets to raise him. The one who will teach him his heritage, the one who will teach him about his God, she's the one who nurses him. Until finally, when Moses is old enough, he's returned to Pharaoh's daughter, he goes to the palace she names him Moses because she drew him out of water. The name Moses literally means he who draws out. Not only was he drawn out of the water by Pharaoh's daughter, but Moses is he who draws Israel out of Egypt. So you have some foreshadowing of Moses' ministry. Now, as an Egyptian prince, which is what Moses was, he would have been educated with the finest education of his time. Acts 7 tells us that he uh, was educated in the Egyptian ways. So, we know Moses would have been trained in linguistics, mathematics, astronomy, architecture, music, medicine, law, diplomacy, among other things. And, and if you just think about ancient Egypt and, you know, the pyramids and architecture, that was some impressive stuff for him to learn. See, his mother teaches him about God. With Pharaoh's daughter, Moses learns to be a ruler. God is preparing Moses. See, this story has God all through it. Although he's not mentioned, like last week, he stands behind all things. God keeps the child safe for three months. He's not caught, he's not found out, he's not exposed in the river. God brings Moses in the basket to Pharaoh's daughter. Pharaoh's daughter didn't have to be bathing that day. She didn't have to be bathing at that spot in the Nile that day. The current could have taken him further down river before she got a chance. But no, God brought Moses to Pharaoh's daughter. God moves her to be compassionate on this child she is meant to kill. God brings Moses back to his mother. God gives him a Hebrew and Egyptian upbringing. It's like God is... God is the general. You know those scenes in war movies how the general stands above the war board and he's moving all the pieces? That's God, except there's no opposing team who can change God's plans. He sees the whole field, he moves all the pieces 
Everything goes perfectly according to his plan because God is the sovereign Lord who brings about his purposes. And this really shows us that salvation belongs to the Lord. No one else is responsible for what happens to Moses here apart from God. It it all seems like coincidence upon coincidence. But it is God at work. He is the author of Moses' salvation. And God will one day do in Bethlehem what he does in Egypt, right? Jesus is born under a death sentence. Herod determines to kill all boys under the age of two. But again, God protects his deliverer. In our salvation, God is also at work. God guides all things to his purposes. So just as Moses is saved, Jesus is saved. And ironically, Jesus flees to Egypt, whereas Exodus is a flee from Egypt. And so what do we do with that? Well, we ought to have faith in the God who stands behind all human history. Not just the history of the Exodus, not just the history of first century Judea, but all of human history. We ought to have faith in the God who stands behind our salvation. Moses' parents didn't know what God would do. How could they? They had no clue. But have a look what Hebrews 11 says about them. So please flick over with me and keep your finger in Exodus 2. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews describes the actions of Moses' parents. Hebrews 11, verse 23. By faith, Moses' parents hid him for three months after he was born because they saw he was no ordinary child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. They couldn't see how God would act, but they trusted God. They acted in faith. They saw that this was... No normal child, but he was a strong, good child. He was a fine child. There's something special about him. And they acted in faith, entrusting him to God, disobeying Pharaoh. We often don't know what God is doing. Moses' parents didn't know what God was doing. Why is life so hard? Why did you take that loved one from me? Why is life so monotonous? We might not have any answers this side of glory, but we're called to trust like Moses' parents trusted. Specifically, we're called to trust in the promise of Romans 8, 28 and 29. Let me read it for you. Paul writes, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. What is God doing? He's working all things for the good of those who love him. If you follow Jesus, he's working all things for your good. What good? What's the purpose? what's, What's the end? To be made more like Jesus. Which might not necessarily be our good in any one circumstance, but is our ultimate good. To be made more like Jesus. How does he do that? We don't know. We might never know but we're called to trust. So trust God. He is working in your life for your good. But back to Moses. By the time we reach verse 11, he's ready for greatness. Look at it with me. One day after Moses had grown up, he went out to where his own people were and watched them at their hard labour. 
Moses uh, is an Egyptian prince. Acts 7 tells us this was when he was about 40. Okay? So he's grown up, he's a man, he's been educated for a long time, lived in the palace for a long time, but he goes and visits his people. And he looks upon Israel hard at work, hard at their labour. He sees their heavy burden and he has compassion on his people. Their burden becomes his burden, the burden of his heart. And his compassion on Israel, it's not a small thing. His compassion on Israel is really a rejection of Egypt because... Egyptians despised manual labour. They, they thought it was the lowest of the low. And if you were forced into manual labour, you were even lower. So the Israelite slaves were nothing to Egyptians. They were pitiful, barely even human. Yet Moses goes out to them. He doesn't stay in his palace, he goes out. He sees them all his life. He's been told slave labour is nothing, they are worthless He sees them and he has compassion on them. Moses goes to them and he loves them. And in doing that, he says no to his Egyptian upbringing. And then he sees one of the Hebrews being harassed by a slave driver, being beaten, and he steps in as deliverer. Moses meets violence with violence. He kills the slave driver, rescues the Israelite. But the problem is, Moses hasn't yet been called to his role as deliverer. He hasn't yet been called to do that and he certainly, when he is called, he's not called to use violence. Moses tries to help Israel his way but that's not God's way. That's not how God determines to do it. And remember, salvation belongs to the Lord, not to Moses. So he ought not have acted that way. It's clear that as impressive as Moses is, he is not yet ready to deliver Israel. So he goes out the next day, he sees two Hebrews fighting this time and he can't even settle that dispute. What what he's done, it must have become known uh, and so he flees because Pharaoh will kill him. In fact, Pharaoh finds out and determines to kill him. So he runs. He has his own exodus, right? Israel will have their exodus soon but Moses has to have his own first. He leaves Egypt behind. Now, Moses' rejection of Egypt is again an act of faith. So, please, again, Hebrews 11. I had a bookmark in it and I took it out when I read and now I have to find it myself. Verse 24. By faith, when he had grown up, he refused... Sorry, by faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be known as the son of Pharaoh's daughter... He chose to be mistreated along with the people of God rather than enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He regarded the treasures of Egypt, sorry, he regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as of greater value than the treasures of Egypt because he was looking ahead to his reward. Moses says no to the pleasures of the palace. He says no to his royal education. He says no to his cushy job as a prince. Instead, he chooses the oppressed. He chooses to identify with the Hebrews, the lowest of the low in Egypt. You know, raised in a palace, he chooses the cause of the people. Long associated with the impressors, he took the side of the oppressed. 
For the sake of his God and Israel, he abandons ease, refinement, luxuries, the highest of earthly honours, to become a houseless wanderer. Moses leaves these things behind in faith. He chooses God and his people and Hebrews 11 tells us in doing that, he chooses Christ. Moses' decision is also Jesus' decision. Moses leaves the palace. Jesus leaves his throne in heaven. He leaves perfect communion with his father. He identifies with the oppressed and the lowly. He leaves the palace and puts on rags. He leaves the throne for the dusty Judean countryside. He leaves the author of all life to die on a cross. Moses and Jesus both reject these things in faith that the Father's plan is better. And we're called to a similar choice. We are called to deny the pleasures of this world, to deny ourselves, as Jesus says, pick up our cross and follow him. And we need to have faith to do that. We need to trust that the age to come is going to be better than anything we would give up here and now. The riches and pleasures of this world, they constantly draw us away from God. They are are constant, 24-7. Your only rest is when you're asleep. And even then, sometimes I dream about the things that I want, right? We, We might feel, you know, work is busy. It makes us tired. We have family obligations. We, we take our kids to sport, music lessons, tutoring, whatever it is. We barely have any time to rest for ourselves. So it is so easy to then say no to the God thing. Say no to church, say no to growth group. You know, I went last week, or was it a couple of weeks ago? That's like, I, I was there, so I'm going to take a rest this week. I'm too tired tonight. Now, that's what I think. That's how I, that's how I think. I, I know it's how we all think because that's me. That's my struggle too. Tim, you've had a busy week. Just take it easy. Enjoy life's pleasures. Leave the God stuff till later. But Moses gives up his palace. Jesus gives up his throne. And I'm not willing to give up, what, like 10 hours a week? You know, if, if I spend three hours at church on, on a Sunday morning... And I spend three hours going to growth group and then chuck in half an hour a day to read the Bible and pray. That's nine and a half hours, okay? Ten hours. That's not even 6% of my time every week. It is a tiny fraction and I'm not willing to give that to God and his people. I need to trust the promises of God. I need to trust that giving these things up is for my good. Giving myself to the God things daily, weekly, is far better for me, both in this life and in the next. So, join me in saying no to the pleasures of this world. Join me in rejecting them and saying, no, I'm going to have faith that doing the God thing, that being part of his people, that sitting under his word, that meeting together is for my good and look forward to the heavenly reward of those things. But finally, let's come back to Moses for one last time. Moses has rejected Egypt and he finds himself in Midian. 
we only really have a rough idea of where Midian is, but let me show you a map. So what you have there, on the far left, that river is the Nile, and up the top where it splits, that's the Nile Delta, uh, and that's all Egypt. Then you can see the two big sea forky bits, that's the top of the Red Sea. That peninsula between the forks, that's the Sinai Peninsula, where Mount Sinai is. And then on the far right of the right-hand fork of the Red Sea, there's a tiny little label that says Midian. That's probably where Moses went. But the Midianites, they didn't necessarily just have a land. They were desert nomads. They cruised around. They probably cruised up towards the Promised Land a little bit. They cruised around in the Sinai Peninsula. We know that because in Exodus 3, that's where Moses is shepherding his flock. So, so they're cruising around. They're not in Egypt, but they're near Egypt. So Moses finds himself in Midian. Thanks, Kelvin. You can get rid of that, mate. And he ends up at a well. Now, if you're living in the ancient world and you want to pick up chicks, that's where you go. You go to the well. Everyone does it. Jacob does it. Jesus does it. It's the thing to do. You know, Christians nowadays, we go to Christian conferences to do that. You used to go to the well. And it works out pretty well for him because while he's there, seven daughters of a Midianite priest come to the well to feed the flock and Moses does end up marrying one of them. But as these women come up to water their flock, they're being harassed by some local shepherds. And this seems to be a regular occurrence because they say to their father, like, the shepherds were there again. He drove off the shepherds. Like, they're the same ones that keep harassing them. And so these women being harassed as usual, but Moses is there and his sense of justice kicks in again. Just like when he saw the Egyptian and the Hebrew and the Hebrew and the Hebrew, now he sees shepherds and women and he steps in has he learned his lesson? Last time he killed a man. Has he learned his lesson? Yes. He doesn't kill anyone. He drives them away, but he doesn't kill anyone. We call that character growth. And then he serves the women, right? He waters their flock for them, which is unheard of for a man to do. That, that was the woman's job and they, they were there to do that. And in fact, the shepherds were likely harassing the women to water their flock first and that's why their father didn't expect them home so early, because they had to do their job and then their own job. And apparently these women are so, so excited by Midian's hottest new bachelor that they run home and leave Moses at the well. They're, they're excited, they tell their dad, Ruel is excited to meet the man, like probably because he's just looking to marry off his daughters, right? Seven of them. So he's like, where is he? Oh, we left him at the well. Well, go get him, bring him back. So they do, they go fetch him, Moses agrees to stay with them. Now during this time, Moses marries one of them, Zipporah, and he has a child, Gershom, likely had more, but that's the one we know of. And now is the time for Moses to grow into the deliverer that God would have him be. Again, Acts 7 tells us he was in Midian for 40 years. Now it might not be a literal 40 years, but it's, it's a long time. He's in there for at least a generation. Moses has his wilderness experience. All the cool ancient people have a wilderness experience. Jacob, Moses, Israel, Elijah, John the Baptist, Jesus, they all go into the wilderness for some time. And now Moses is not a prince, he's a desert nomad, a foreigner, where he learns to live in a land that's not his own. Egypt was his home, he was raised as an Egyptian, 
He didn't know the experience of Israel living in a land not their own, but now he will learn. It's not his home. He'll learn what it's like. As a husband, he'll learn to love and to serve someone he's been given to lead. As a father, he learns to care for and discipline those he leads. He even becomes a shepherd. Now, if manual labour and slaves were the lowest of the low in Egypt, shepherds were just outright hated. They were loathed. Moses becoming an Egyptian is... Sorry, Moses becoming a shepherd is the biggest spit in the face to his Egyptian upbringing that there could have been. Egyptians hated shepherds. But as a shepherd... He learns to lead, protect and provide for his flock. Later on, Moses is literally called a shepherd of Israel, Israel of the sheep. God has put Moses in humble, ordinary circumstances to grow him. This is the humdrum, rinse and repeat part of Moses' life. He does his job every day. He has a wife he sacrifices his own desires for. Kids who he has to be loving and patient and kind with. God uses these ordinary means to grow Moses. And it's only after that 40 years that Moses is finally ready to be the deliverer God would have him be. And and we'll see next week. He's still not even quite ready enough. But again, this is all God's work, isn't it? God still stands behind everything that happens. God brings Moses to Midian. God brings Moses to Ruel. God brings Moses a wife and a child. God gives Moses a flock. God gives Moses these ordinary circumstances in order to grow him. So again, salvation belongs to the Lord. These aren't just coincidences recorded for us in history. No, this is God's hand at work shaping Moses to be the man he needs to be. And so again, we are to have faith. Faith that God is using the ordinary things in our life to grow us. The monotony of your job teaches you perseverance and faithfulness. Raising children teaches you patience. Lots and lots of patience. Our spouses teach us to sacrifice. Having money teaches us to be generous. Being busy teaches us to be disciplined. God is teaching us even now so that we might grow more and more into the image of his son. God works through these ordinary things in your life to grow you. What is God doing in your life? He's growing you to be like his son Jesus. That's what Romans 8 says, remember? In the day in, in the day out, in the suffering, in the boring, in the exciting, in whatever it is, God is growing you. He's making you into the person he wants you to be if you live by faith. That's what we're to trust. We trust in God. We might not know how, we might not know why, but we know what he's doing. Let me finish with these final words of Exodus 2. From verse 23 to 25. During that long period, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out, and their cry for help, because of their slavery, went up to God. God heard their groaning, and he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites, 
and was concerned about them. This is the first time in the book of Exodus that God has taken centre stage. He's been in the background the whole time, but now he's front and centre. Now he acts and we see it. God hears the cries of Israel, he sees their oppression, and when he sees their oppression, it's like how Moses sees their oppression, he doesn't just see it and like, oh, that's interesting. It's no, these are my people and they're being oppressed and I have compassion on them and I love them and I'm going to do something. He hears the cry and he remembers the covenant. Not that he forgot it, but now he's going, it's my time to act. I'm going to act on that covenant. God determines to save Israel from slavery in Egypt. God has seen and heard our cry, stuck in sin, without hope in the world, and God has determined to rescue us. God determines to rescue us, so he sends his son into the world and he guides all of history so that Jesus comes at the right time. Jesus isn't killed like all the other boys, but he's rescued and flees to Egypt. He grows up and has his own wilderness experience where he says no to the pleasures of this world. He says no to skipping the suffering of the cross. But he determines to die for us. He heads to the cross. He gives his life in our place. And that is what we're called to have faith in. To trust in Jesus, our deliverer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please remind us that you are working in our lives. Even if we can't see it, even if we don't know what it is you're doing, help us to have faith, Father. Help us to trust. Trust your good promises. We know you stand behind all things, particularly you stand behind our salvation. Help us to trust in you that you would save us and make us into the image of your Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.